Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs. And today we're going to talk about detecting infection in your breath. Yes, the breath, what you breathe out. So it's pretty fascinating tech. And to do that, we're talking to Joe Kramer, who's the CEO of Isomark. And they're located in Madison, Wisconsin, so I'm sitting with Joe right now. And in full disclosure, I used to be the CEO of Isomark before we brought in Joe to replace me, which was quite an excellent move. So as I said, Isomark is pretty amazing. We'll talk to Joe to find out more details. And we can also find out what Joe has learned along the way and hear more about his background. So, Joe, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, Dave. How are you today? (laughs) Oh, great. All right. So we'll put Joe right on the spot and just ask kind of how he got to Isomark and what was his background to get here. If you can uh, think through some of that. Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. So I've been sort of focused in on the entrepreneurial market ever since I got my MBA in finance in 1997. And so I joined Isomark in 2012, so that was 15 years after that. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, I had worked on starting different businesses. I had just uh, finished a stint at a return gig where one of my startups was in need of a turnaround. Um, and we, uh, we accomplished that, and I was starting to look for my next challenge. And What was that in? That, that was actually in Power Electronics, so that is right. where we... Uh, we uh, made battery chargers for the um, material handling market. Uh, so our, our, our product, which was um, utilizing technology out of the University of Wisconsin, again, uh, was basically deployed to all uh, the General Motors plants around mm-hmm. North America, along with most craft plants. And so we, it was an interesting high-tech market, not like medical device and lacking a lot of the regulations that we're dealing with at Isomark. And we can get into that and... The, the awesome regulatory industry. All right, so, and now you're here. Uh, can you tell us, before we get into kind of the, the nuts and bolts of Isomark, can you just tell us an overview of what Isomark does, like if you uh, can, the amount of money raised, if you know offhand. Um, yeah, yeah that's awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. Give so, us a little pitch. Give us a minute pitch. On yeah, so it's a quick <laughs> pitch. So basically what, what, we, what we do at Isomark is we're able to take very simple, non-invasive samples of breath and turn the information that we gather out of that into knowing if someone is developing an infection. And the exciting thing about that is not just that we can do it without drawing blood um, and that we can do this very accurately, but the big thing is we can do this pre-symptomatically. So we actually know an infection is developing before anyone else would possibly know that an infection is there. So giving that multiple day heads up to the clinicians is gonna dramatically change the way we treat infections. Gotcha, and uh, and how much money have you raised? Oh yeah, so far far we have brought in just over $4 million and two thirds of this has been with grants from the uh, NIH along with some others. Okay, all right, so you're detecting infection in breath pretty early on so you're like you're like a much improved temperature blood pressure everything combined in some ways I mean that's not the best way to put it but well, no I yeah, think that's yeah. actually a good, good yeah. point because yeah actually that's what how, how we're sort of trying to position 
the breath technology that we're utilizing is like the next vital sign because really what our infection detection mm -hmm. is based off of is detecting what's happening with an individual's metabolism. So we aren't actually going and seeing the actual infection within a person, but rather the person's out outward bodily response to the infection. So be because of that, much like temperature, heart rate, other things, you know, th those things can change for a variety of reasons. Our biomarkers can change for really a variety of reasons, and those all are linked to metabolism. And then with, within that, the way our biomarker changes is very specific to different things. So if, if, if we're looking at infections, we are looking at a specific change within our biomarker over a specific time frame. And that tells us when the body switches into the ultimate defense against an infection, which is called the acute phase response. It's basically the creation of the immune proteins, the changing of the main energy source for metabolism, which is muscle at that point versus carbohydrate. And so we're able to detect that, and we know then an infection has started to onset. All right, and, and how, in the world, what, how in the world do you detect this? What are you detecting in, in my breath when I breathe out? What are you looking at? Yeah, so, so we aren't, so aren't looking for little green monsters or anything <laughs> that are lurking in Too in bad. <laughs> but uh, what we're actually looking at are, are carbon isotopes. So we're actually looking at molecules of carbon dioxide, and then within that we are looking at the specific carbon atoms to see exactly, I believe it's what's the, the neutrons, how many different neutrons or protons, you know, it's yeah, yeah. the difference yeah, yeah. between okay. an isotope. So, so we're, we're looking at the very minute differences between the carbon dioxide in exhaled breath. Um, and by doing that, by looking at these specific isotopes, we can tell what's going on with metabolism. So to do that, we actually have to use a spectrometer. It's uh, far more uh, complicated and really digs in far deeper than, let's say, a breath analyzer uh, that is, you know, obviously looking to see if someone has been drinking. We are actually looking at, again, sort of the makeup of the atoms that are within breath. Hmm. Interesting. All right. And so, like, who cares about this? Like, what, what's a kind of your target market and why, why is that your target market? Yeah, the... So the end goal is we're going to be saving lives and saving money within healthcare. And so with, within that, we actually have three different customer classes that we're dealing with. Obviously, the patient who wants to get better and, and live, uh, that's probably the number one customer. But the people who are really making the decisions on using the product are the clinician, so the person that's actually treating the patient in hospital, because our product is for in-hospital use at this point but then also the hospital administrators that are managing the cash flows and the expenses of the hospital. So we can reduce costs, which administrators like, but we can also improve outcomes, meaning we can help clinicians treat their patients better, and that's what the clinicians like. And, and where in the hospital are you focused on? So it's like, like any startup, we gotta focus, you know, sort of like a laser beam on one particular market, so right now, we're working on the intensive care unit, the ICUs in the hospital, where the most vulnerable and expensive patient population exists. But our goal is once we establish ourselves within that market that we want to spread throughout the entire hospital system. All right, and what do, uh, what do the ICU docs say, or what, you know, 
can you tell us about the studies or you know kind of what's been the re response on yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just sort of serve a, a response from Docs, one of the most recent ones that I was introducing the technology to, to the quote, and I actually wrote it down, was <laughs> mind-blowingly cool. <laughs> so it's really, from the clinician standpoint, giving them this amount of information is something that they've never had, that they, and this is something that they've always wanted around infection, is providing a real accurate early biomarker for infection. Uh, that is an easy enough thing to use that they can use it for basically almost continuous monitoring of, of, of their patients. So that's really what they're excited about because this is going to radically change the way that they treat patients. Because right now, when you develop an infection, for a clinician to think an infection is present, they have to see these outward signs. You have to look sick, you have to have a fever, you have to have different type of deranged vital signs to give some type of clue that an infection is present. And even at that point, because it's so nonspecific, all of the things that clinicians look at to determine if someone has an infection at the very early stages can be signs of something else being wrong with the patient. It doesn't actually hone in on infection. So at the point where a clinician thinks an infection might be present, they're typically right about 50% of the time. And so they know that, and everyone knows that. So then what they try to do then is they try to confirm whether or not an infection is present. And this is where a lot of the problems uh, exist right now within the market. Uh, because when you don't know if an infection is present, but you think it might be, typically clinicians are then right away treating with antimicrobials, with like antibiotics. And the problem there is if half the time the patients they're treating really don't have an infection, that causes a whole heap of problems within the whole healthcare system from increased expenses that are unnecessary all the way to potentially creating the next drug-resistant superbugs because those, one of the main drivers of drug resistance is the overuse of antibiotics. So the clinician really has a tough question once they suspect that an infection might be there is do they treat or do they not treat? If they treat and they're over-treating, they could again be creating these superbugs. But if they don't treat and if an infection is present, then that creates a whole other problem because the infection then is being enabled to run wild, get control of the body, and could often lead to death. So it's really a quandary. And so we're looking to remove that unknown about is an infection truly present or not. And not only are we trying to remove that, but we're also trying to move the knowledge that infection is there far earlier in the game than is currently possible. Gotcha. Okay. And so do you have any uh, results or data you can share about why you're better than what's out there now? Absolutely. So we've been, so we've been running clinical trials for the last five years. We've looked at over 100 subjects in various, various different forms and stacking isomark up against what could be competitive competitors and really the main competitor is just how healthcare is dealing with infections now mm -hmm. which is again using these non-accurate clinical signs to provide early infection detection so what we found in our studies is is we are two days earlier than current diagnostic methods so mm -hmm. we can detect infections two days early and not only do we again detect them early but we also detect them accurately because that is that's a problem. It's, it's not only a problem with clinical suspicion at the early stages of the infection process, but it's also a problem when clinicians are using uh, blood-based cultures 
to try to grow and confirm an infection. Blood-based cultures are themselves just inherently inaccurate. Um, it's just sort of mm -hmm. a rule of thumb that 50% of the time uh, when an infection is present, a blood culture will not uh, come back positive, meaning you would not know the infection is there. So it's really the tools that we have for infection from early detection to confirmation are just very inaccurate. And that leads to hundreds of thousands, in fact, probably millions of people around the world dying unnecessarily because infections are really going on for too long without being treated. And, uh, yeah, and do you, how, yeah, any stats on infection or how many people you get infected? If you go to the hospital, what are your chances of, uh, getting infected. Yeah, I think one of I think one of the best responses or just sort of to frame this is a a national expert was being interviewed um, on national public radio a couple of years ago and when the interviewer asked how can a person avoid hospital acquired yeah. infections his response was immediate. He said stay out of the hospital. <laughs> That's if, comforting. If you stay out of the hospital you won't get an infection because infection rates are so high. Uh, they range anywhere from five to ten percent for the entire hospital population, wow. which is which <laughs> which is just incredible. And if you really peel that back, if you look at certain surgeries or certain type of trauma or certain type of demographics of patients, uh, the the stats are astounding. Some some forms of surgery can amount to about a twenty percent or mm -hmm. more uh, cases of infection. Um, you know, head That's trauma crazy. causes a lot of problems around infection because it throws your immune really? system out of whack. Yeah, so it's huh. so it's it's the five to ten percent is a lot, but it's deceiving because if you look into certain cohorts within that population, the numbers are far greater than that. Interesting. All right, and so how will this work in the you know your initial area of the ICU? So let's say I go to the ICU, not going to wait until that doesn't happen, and uh, so they wheel me into a room, and then how does it kind of a how do I start getting tested or with uh, your product? Yeah, so it's, it's really very easy. We just grab a sample of breath from a patient. They can be ventilated uh, where we basically are able to draw the breath from the ventilator itself. Or they can, if they're free breathing, they just blow into the bag. It takes seconds to fill up our bag. And sort of like a blood draw where uh, a nurse will go around and collect all the blood draws and then send them down to the lab. What we're envisioning is the nurse or the respiratory therapist will grab samples uh, at the beginning of their shift and mid-shift, so sampling about every four hours mm -hmm. where they'll round their patients, grab all the samples, go to our device, which we have called the Canary. That's right. In fact, Dave, I think you came up with that name. <laughs> That's um, right. Sort of like the Canary <laughs> in the coal mine, the early warning. So they, they grab all their samples of breath from their patients, go to the Canary where it has multiple ports where you can hook up our sample collection bags, multiple bags up to the device all at once, and basically click start, start and walk away, and then the device takes care of it. It takes about 10 minutes per sample, if not less, to have a reading, and it really just then gives you the information mm -hmm. as to where what we call the breath delta value is for each patient. Um, and then what we do is, what we like to do is we like to trend over time the breath delta value from each patient. So depending on how much the breath delta value changes over time and 
by what amount it changes over time tells us what's going on with the patient's metabolism. So it's a trending tool that we use. Nice. And, uh, and how will you, uh, will you charge? Or it depends. Yeah, so what we're looking at is charging on a per-use basis. Okay. So that's sort of how many diagnostics are. If you do a blood draw, uh, you have to pay to actually run the test. And similar to ours, we're planning on, although not charging much, this is, our test does not cost much to run. So we're, okay. we are looking at maybe $10 a test. Okay, nice. So that'd be, what, six tests a day or so? So yeah. 60 bucks a patient. So $60 a patient for that type of monitoring. That's not bad, because, well, yeah, because how much does it cost for an IC, a day in the ICU? Oh, you, yeah, it's thousands, thousands of dollars. Yes, it's many thousands, yeah. So yeah, so anytime that you can catch an infection early and keep a patient from going into an ICU, that saves a yeah. lot of money. Or if they're in the ICU and you catch an infection early, they won't be staying in the hospital as long. Now, that's, that's a great point around statistics, is the average length of stay for a person walking or being carted into a hospital is just under five days. If that patient develops an infection, then the length of stay on average goes to over 22 days. Mm. <laughs> so it extends oh. it by four uh, if you catch an infection. So just thinking about sort of what you're getting into is how much does it cost to have a patient in a bed per day? And if you think about a develop an, an infection, actually you have to multiply those costs by four for that mm. infection. And it's all around monitoring and finding the infection early enough, which isn't happening. So the patients end up catching bad infections, staying in the hospital for a long time. So that's really what, what we're looking at is making it possible to get patients to be better, faster, and out of the hospital faster, and that saves a lot of money. Gotcha. Um, I had a follow-up question, and then I just drew a blank. I started talking about the FDA. Um, Anyways, we'll come back to it. So I, I was curious to hear about the FDA and what your thoughts are on it because you, know, you came from a non-regulatory but product development or a product firm, and now you've been working with FDA for five years. You know what? Uh, what have you learned, or how's the experience been? Um, what would you have done differently? I guess. Yeah. You know, now that you know more about a little bit more about the FDA. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I've one thing I do have to say. I'm surprised that the FDA has been quite friendly with us oh, along the oh, way and, awesome. right. and very helpful yeah. Yeah. as much as they can be. I mean, it's, we are dealing with a product that we are trying to save lives with. So yeah. we do have to go through some rigorous testing, which makes sense. So for the FDA, what we are looking at is we have to do something that's called, we need clearance by the FDA to market our product and to achieve clearance on a medical device. There are three different pathways, but Thanks to some input from the FDA, we have identified that we're able to follow the easiest pathway, which is called the 510K, and that is actually based off of saying, there's a device similar to yours in the market, and we just have to run a test to show that we are comparable or better than that existing test. And so there's a blood-based test that we're going to compare ourselves mm -hmm. to um, that Hopefully after 200 subjects in our clinical trial that will run at three different sites around the U.S., uh, we'll be able to prove that we uh, function better uh, than that other test and we will have clearance from the FDA. So Sounds easy. Yeah, yeah it sounds super easy. It's just from here to there, it's not quite that easy. From here to there, we're still looking at a year or so 
um, and about three to four million dollars. Okay, that was one of my questions: is what do you need now, and what would you do with it? But that's it: three, four million, and then to do the FDA yep. kind of pivotal trial, and then get to the market and see to... where we end up okay. there. Would you need a lot more money at that time once you get the clearance to for marketing purposes and everything and device development? Would you need more? Yeah, more we money? yeah we would, and but it, it it's it, it's going to depend where the company is because we're trying to build this for an acquisition. So what okay. we would like to do is bring on a large, what we would call a strategic partner that's a significantly sized multinational firm that has distribution channels within the healthcare systems, has a workforce, a sales force that knows how to sell product already. Because to develop all that takes a lot of money and time. And so we're hoping it's better for us just to be acquired by someone with that yeah. existing okay. channel. Right. So. The plan is achieve clearance, see what type of offers, if there are any, for an acquisition. If none, then we move on to our first level of sales, which will be for with early adopters, okay. just to show that we can get market acceptance, see if we can achieve a sale at that point, and if not, then we will build the business. Gotcha, okay. And uh, I'd like to get more into some of the, your learnings going through this process, but I'd like to go back to the question I forgot, because I think it's an interesting one, and it's changing, And because people will be like, well, who cares if they get infections? The hospitals will just get reimbursed by insurance and the payers. Um, but that's changing quite a bit, right, with the hospital-inquired infections, um, how they're reimbursed. It is. Yeah, that, that has been changing for almost the last decade, where... Um, it's assumed that if you get an infection in the hospital, that's the hospital's fault. Hmm. And so that's sort of the premise that Medicare and Medicaid have really sort of established that they won't reimburse for any costs around hospital-acquired infections because they believe that that can be improved just by changes at the hospital. That's partially true, partially not. Okay. Um, so that's helping to drive the market for us because if we were trying to roll this out 20 years ago, Maybe. Uh, sort of you know how you laid out, on the on you you get paid for all the services you provide as a hospital the more services the better but that's changing so nowadays you really want to focus on getting the patient out the door and healthy as fast as possible because there's a movement towards uh, value-based um, health care which is really you know what are your results as a hospital compared to other hospitals for improving patients with similar problems so the hospitals that outperform the other hospitals with value-based healthcare are supposed to be able to then make more profit effectively. Okay. All right. But then there's also a, an, another side to this is called bundled payments, where it's kind of incorporated within value-based. But with bundled payments, if you are brought to a hospital and if you, let's say, have a broken leg, there's a set fee that is going to be paid to the hospital to make you better. And the hospital either makes profit by not having as many expenses as the amount of money they're receiving hmm. for that patient, or they lose money if it costs them more than it ought to to make that patient better. And one of the big drivers around that, again, if you go back to the statistic of nearly four times increased length of stay for if you develop an infection, hospitals under this bundled payment system are gonna be very motivated to catch infections early, uh, to treat them early in order so that they can actually treat the patient with the amount of money that's been allocated for whatever they're doing. Gotcha, okay. 
Makes sense. Yeah. And so but on, on the flip side, what, what is for ice and for you coming in five years ago, what's been some of the biggest issues you've had to deal with? Um, stuff that keeps you up at night or stresses you out or yeah, we all, every startup has them. So yeah, every startup has them and probably every startup has, has the issue of funding. So it's funding has always been the yes. problem. Yeah. Um, but we've been able to fund it to this, to this extent. You know, other things along with funding that uh, make us worried would be if there would be some type of zigzag within the regulatory market mm. that we're actually trying to deal with, getting through the FDA, if there was some type of major change there that could cause us problems. We obviously think about competitors, what other type of technology could come out and do what we are doing. Although from that standpoint, we don't see many true competitors within our space. Um, in fact, the way we'd like to position ourselves is a complement to other diagnostics That's a good point. Um, and to current methods is where what we're trying to do is really find the patients that are truly infected so that the clinicians can focus in on them, run diagnostics, give them treatment on those people that actually have an infection. And if we look at it from that standpoint, we're not going to be supplanting any type of diagnostic that's already out there, any type of new diagnostic that could be developed. We're actually helping to point in at the patients that should have those diagnostics used. So we actually don't feel we have much of a competitive uh, barrier in on, on that side of things. Um, other things that have kept us up, you know, obviously, you know, as we're developing or have been developing the device, will the technology fully work and can we put in the package that is point of care ready, which we have done yeah. in the last year. Um, other things that we've had to deal with, you know, anyone who's ever run a clinical trial knows that uh, study sites are important to getting your actual data, and not all study sites can perform as well as others. And so that's always been a concern mm -hmm. because we're a startup, yeah. don't have tons of money. It's not like we can take many, many swings at running a clinical trial. We basically have to get it right the first time around. Um, and so that's always been a major concern that we have had, are our clinical sites performing. And how do you, that's a good point, because I know, um, yeah, the clinical sites, you know, there's been uh, ups and downs. So how would you go after it now? Like, knowing that you did, how would you approach a site and do it differently? Or maybe you wouldn't do it differently. Maybe you just have to try. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if we would do it too differently, because okay. I think you sort of, you, you know, you conduct due diligence and you visit sites and you talk to the people that would be your principal right. investigators and you talk to the people who are actually your research coordinators and the people who are running the study. Um, but really what it comes down to is when you open the study and they're starting to recruit subjects, how do they perform? Because everyone talks a good game, but it's mm. like you have to see them perform. So we've, we've really honed in over the last five years as to how we uh, evaluate sites and that's helped a lot, but it really still comes down to turning the study on and seeing how they perform. But it's probably a good experience for your uh, the FDA pivotal trial coming up, so you have some good sites that could get the patients through. Get the patients through. We do, and that's and that's something that we've been really focused in on as we've been conducting our exploratory studies. We've been trying to find the right study sites, uh, which which we have. So we have three very good sites that we are going to use in a regulatory trial. Okay. 
And, uh, and I'm curious, you've been doing this for five years, and if somebody came to you with a new med device, you know, coming out of like a university, like the University of Wisconsin, they're like, hey, what do you think of this, Joe? Just like to get your thoughts on it. And, um, you know, what, uh, what questions would come to your mind? I mean, it's kind of a generic question, right? Depends yeah. upon what type of device it is and what area, but yeah, what, what would you... Uh, immediately kind of start thinking about yeah I, I'd first try to think of what is the addressable market you know mm -hmm. to start to frame in is there going to be a big enough market to support what we're going to want okay. to do and then the second thing I would think of well how much money do we need to make this happen mm -hmm. and does that amount of money equate to the size of the market because we have to deliver returns to investors yep. so you have to start thinking about how much money you have to put in and what could the potential exit look look like? And if those things start to check out, then you start, I think, looking into the technology itself and does it work and how does it work? Is it easy to use? You know, yeah. how far is it developed? Mm -hmm. You know, what is it gonna take to from the current status of the technology to an actual commercial unit? Because um, that could it could be a very narrow gap between those things, or it could be a really wide gap. So it, it, it really depends on, you know, money needed, the type of market, along with um, what's the status of the technology. Gotcha, okay. That's helpful. And uh, all right, so we're pretty much out of time. And uh, yeah, this has been fun because this is probably the interview where I've known the most about the topic by far. So like, you usually <laughs> have no idea what I'm talking about, which probably shows. And this one, you know, maybe... Uh, I didn't. I probably still don't know enough, but well, you could I, just interview I know, yourself. I, yeah, no, I've been a mess. <laughs> I I originally had it the intro. I was like, oh, I'll just wing the intro because usually I write it out, and so I tried winging the intro before I came over. And I'm like, I should write it out. <laughs> anyway, so I, before we leave you though, uh, what um, yeah, what do you like doing in your spare time outside of uh, Isamark? Oh God, that's a. <laughs> It all depends. Well, you have I, you see Joe's office. He definitely has a he definitely has kids. Yes, he's got so, lots of kids drawings. There's yeah. one that looks like a fish is going to attack a treehouse, which is pretty awesome. But or I don't know what's going on there. But yeah, that's actually a kids show <laughs> that I can't remember. Okay. Right. Octonauts. Octonauts. Oh, I love octonauts. Yeah, yeah that's all right. Um, yeah, so it's kids really, and then if when there's escape from the kids, I try to go camping or just get oh, yeah. get away as much as I can. That's right. Okay. Um, and you like to run? Or do you like running? I do like to run. Yeah, yeah. Probably a little too much. You should have mentioned that, too. No, yeah. <laughs> no that is probably the, one of the more daily type of things. Uh, that's a good getaway. But no, it's good. We live in Madison. So it's a good place. It's a very good place. Don't ask us that in February. Yeah, it's October. So, um, all right. Well, thanks, Joe. Thanks, this is fun. And I uh, definitely appreciate it. And uh, it's quite a. Interesting, valuable tech you're working on. So let's get it out there and yeah. see what we can do. Well, thanks for your your work on it. Oh, yes. Yeah. All right. Many hands. All right. Cool. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I definitely appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Joe.